I've done a lot of conference speaking over the last 15 years with my work. And most of the time, it's like I got to say, well, I'm the only thing standing between you and lunch. Or worse than that is I'm standing between you and happy hour. Well, you guys are standing between me and vacation. There's a, a van loaded at home. And as soon as I get done, I'm going to run home, change clothes, wolf down a sandwich, and we're off to Virginia to visit my son, his wife, our daughter-in-law, and three grandchildren. So I'm really excited to get out of Dodge. Well, Mark already prayed for me. Um, holiday weekend during COVID, but I'm honored to be here to speak to you and thankful for the, the message. I had a bunch of notes, and other than the outline, I scrapped them all in the first go-round. So uh, we'll see what happens this time. Try to behave myself. It's difficult. So um, I, have, uh, I work for a utility company in my day job, and I'm on a team at the utility. And largely, we prepare for hurricane season. We start way early in the year because most of you folks don't like it when your power goes out and you don't like it when it goes out and stays out. So we have uh, teams in our company and we prepare for everything we can in advance. And in that planning, what we do is prepare for the worst, but pray for the best. So two years ago, we had the worst. Our utility serves Mariana, Florida. Michael hit there and knocked 100% of the power out, destroyed multiple homes, killed people, ruined lives. So we prepare for that and hope it doesn't happen. This has been a really weird time. I'm older than a good percentage of you in here, 66 years old. And uh, I've never experienced a time like this in my life. I haven't been to church in six months. I accepted Christ when I was 21, and I've probably not missed more than a week since then. Now, we watch online, which is kind of nice, because, I mean, I can edit what I want. If Mark's not too hot today, we'll flip it over to another church, see what's happening, you know. So that part's kind of good. See what I mean? I can get in trouble. Let's get to the message. So for 40 years, I've been doing some kind of research, either biblical research, energy research, some kind of research. And I never believe much of what I hear. I always want to do my own work, dig in, find stuff from different angles. I listen to a ton of podcasts. Uh, from every side imaginable, trying to figure out what's really true north here, you know. So I really believe this has been a trial run from the Lord. I believe he's preparing his people for what's to come. I used to always say when I was a pastor, the best is yet to come. And I really believed it, but I, I really don't believe that anymore. I believe the best is yet to come if you know Jesus Christ and you're talking about dying and going to heaven. But as far as the best is yet to come on planet earth for the church, I don't believe it. 
There's a researcher named George Barney. He does surveys and polls and keeps his finger on the pulse of the American church. Before COVID hit, he released his 2020 uh, results. And from 1993 to 2020, 36% of Americans that previously went to church stopped going. There's a growing number of people that call themselves nuns, not N-U-N-S, but N-O-N-E-S, nuns. They embrace no faith structure whatsoever. I would like to give you one more stat out of that research. He wanted to find out how many Americans are participating Christians. That was his language. And he identified a participating Christian as somebody who says their faith is very important to them and who at least attends one service a month. Now, when I cut my teeth on Christianity, I look at that as an oxymoron. You say your faith is really important to you, but you participate once a month? I question how serious that faith is. And I'm not talking about during the pandemic. So I would like to introduce you guys to this. Because I think as Christians, we need to do like our company does for hurricanes. We need to prepare for the worst, but pray for the best. Hope it turns out better than I think it's going to. But I'm telling you, the deck's been stacked against us for at least 30 years. Every kid going to a public university is coming out of there if they believe what they're taught, somewhat twisted. I didn't say this in the first service, but the van is ready to leave town, that is. If you're 18 years of age or younger, I want to apologize to you. There's been so much pressure put on you, and I want you to know that your primary objective is not to figure out what your sexual identity is. You would be way better served if you figured out what your identity is in Christ as a Christ follower. If you could embrace that I am loved by an eternal God, I've been created in his image and he fully accepts me and loves me and knows me and you accept your identity in him. Identify yourself with Christ and don't worry about all the other stuff. There, I said it, and I feel good about it. So prepare for the worst. What do I mean by that? Man, during this whole time when just because some governor or I don't even know who told us, not allowed to go to church, might catch cooties. And just like that, man, we all said, oh, okay. Now, I've had conversations with our executive pastor about this. Mark and I probably need to as well. I started looking at how we've done church for the last 30 years in America. 
We've tried to soften it, make it so accessible to the uninitiated. I'm afraid we've kind of weakened it at the moors. What if we didn't have technology during this time? What if somebody said, you know what? Not only can you not go to church, but we're snipping the internet on you too. Worst case scenario, what if this thing quit working? What would we do? I'm saying prepare for the worst, pray for the best. Unplug your phone, unplug your electronics, reintroduce yourself or introduce yourself to a hard copy of the Bible. Get your nose in that thing, interact with it, underline stuff. Write notes in it. And then if the crap, I mean the excrement hits the fan and we don't have electronics, maybe in a more difficult time than what COVID's been and we're cut off from the mothership of Bay Life, you'll be able to fend for yourself. You'll be able to feed yourself. I believe a true Christian should be able to thrive in any environment, no matter what life throws at us because Christ lives in me. All right, we're going to look at Matthew 5 through 7 today. And the reason for that is when I read Barna's stats, I thought something is seriously wrong. When Christians don't have enough knowledge, enough courage, enough faith to stand up against a culture that is totally whack and gently share the truth of Scripture, but rather we fall away from it all, something's wrong. Something's deathly wrong. My favorite studies when I was in college was a course called hermeneutics. Has anybody ever heard of hermeneutics? It's a 50 cent word that's basically, a, it's the science and art of interpreting literature. So to give you an idea of what hermeneutics does, we, we try to figure out what the culture was like back when the literature was written. What was the culture like? Where was it at? What's the geography? Who's the ruling bodies? When you get down a little tighter, it's who is writing to whom. That's hermeneutics. So every culture that's ever lived on the planet has its own unique culture. You ever go on a mission trip? Those cultures, groups that we go to are different than our culture. That's why we have to learn about them before we go so we don't do anything stupid. The cultures in America, the culture stream, imagine it's a stream. And so in this room, we have multiple culture streams, even in America, as the culture that I grew up with is totally different than the culture this young lady's growing up in. If I said, um, we don't have a remote, I am a remote. Would you know what I was talking about? No, I didn't think so. 
When we were kids, the TV had like this little dial on it. It had 12 channels and only four of them worked. And so when I'm like five years old sitting next to dad on the couch, he'd say, Scotty, go over and put that on number four. So we didn't have a remote. I was the remote there. Welcome to my culture. But most of our young people have never grown up in a culture that didn't have electronics. So we have this culture. It's, it's unique to us. It's unique probably to your lifespan, your history, your experience in this country. And what I want you to know about that culture is when I go over here and read Matthew 5 through 7 to you, they had no clue about our culture. It was a totally different time in history. A couple thousand years ago, no electronics, no America. They knew nothing of us. And if we just go back and read the Bible through our 21st century Western lens, we can do great disservice to the text. So I'm going to give you a little background. There was no church in this passage. The predominant religion was Judaism, Jewish people, Hebrews, the whole Old Testament story or the Hebrew scripture story that followed their history all the way up. Jesus was on the scene. He was starting his public ministry, but he was a, a Jewish young man that grew up in the Jewish faith. All he knew was uh, no Sunday school in church. They would go to the synagogues on Saturdays, celebrate the Sabbath. By this time, there were no more animal sacrifices. To a large degree, that kind of went away in the intertestamental period. I'm going to guess going to a Jewish service, especially for children and young people, was probably rather boring. There wasn't a whole lot shaken there. It was definitely just a lot of religious rigmarole. Sound like thunder. It was just God saying amen. No. So what we're going to do is I want you to imagine coming into that society. All anybody ever knew was churches. They knew it. Rome's rulers, the religious leaders in Judaism were paid by Rome some to keep the Jewish people in line. One of the big fears of the Jewish leaders was that if our people get out of sorts and start having fights amongst themselves and everything, Rome's going to come in here and we're going to lose our power. We're going to lose our influence. We're going to lose our status as Jewish leaders. So it was kind of a convoluted kind of leadership in, in that environment. But imagine now the best way I think we can get this is here we are in America. You all have your church experience, whatever it is. But you kind of know the American way. What Jesus did would be exactly like I came in here today and I said, you know what? You guys have been doing it all wrong all this time. But don't worry because I've asked 12 of these guys and today it would probably be six guys and six women. 
We're going to overhaul the whole thing. You don't need to worry about it. We're fixing it. That was Jesus' message. He came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. He came not to extend Judaism out further, but he came to totally overhaul it and start this thing we call the church, every nation, language, and tongue. So no wonder they killed him. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, there's a key verse, verse 20, that we need. The whole Sermon on the Mount hinges on that verse. And here's what it says, basically, to that culture at that time. His audience was his disciples. The guys he was using to change the world were in close to him. And then there was a crowd gathered behind him listening in. But he's talking primarily to them. And he said, listen, guys, if your righteousness isn't any better than theirs, you're never going to enter the kingdom of heaven. And then this whole sermon, what he does is he compares what they were used to in religion to what he is asking them to step up to as a Christ follower who's going to be part of this revolution that's going to follow Jesus to the cross where he would die for our sins and meet him at the tomb where he would rise from the grave to become the jet fuel of this new movement. What is the fuel of Christianity? It's not necessarily what we believe about the Bible. It's not necessarily that uh, what we believe about much of anything except this thing. We follow a guy who said... I'm going to die for your sin and I'm going to be buried and in three days I'm coming out of that grave alive. And he pulled it off and we follow him. And what Jesus is going to show these guys is the price tag to follow me is far different than the price tag to attach in yourself to some religion. So let's get to it. Time is wasting. Religion tends to focus on external rule keeping and Jesus is looking for internal heart change. Six times in the Sermon on the Mount and you can look them up yourself. Go home and get introduced to that good fake leather Bible and read Matthew 5 through 7 and look for these words. You have heard, there's your religion. But I'm saying unto you, here's the new way. You have heard, do not murder. Got any murders in the house? I got a friend that says, I'm not prejudiced. I hate everybody. Jesus said, if you hate, your heart's prepared to murder. You've committed murder in your heart already, and, and I want a clean heart. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, he started. I'm not worried about what you do externally if it isn't motivated internally by a right motive and a clean heart. I'm here to change your heart, Jesus says. You heard, don't commit adultery. What, what does that law do for you? Well, 
it does something for you if you haven't ever committed adultery. You can sit up and say, I never committed adultery. I'm better than that guy over there it did. That guy up here it did. But Jesus up to Annie and he said, yeah, but have you ever lusted after a woman in your heart? You've committed adultery with her in your heart already. Religion, checkbox. Go to church, check the box. Don't bring a Bible, it's up on the screen. We're spoon feeding you. Never crack my Bible, don't even know where my Bible is. It could be in the trunk, back seat. It's dusty somewhere. But I check the box, I go to church, might even serve somewhere, might work in the parking lot. So I want to ask you folks that that's your fulfilling part of your spiritual life. How's that working for you when we couldn't come for three months? Jesus has far more than any religion will ever have for you. Because it's all internal work. Let's move on. Religious practices can be done for show. But Jesus says, do secret, non-public practices that feed your souls and bless others. So the religious people always made sure they were in the street corner when they had their one of the three prayer times a day. The whistle would blow. It was time for prayer time. They'd find themselves at Market Square. Thank you, Lord, that I'm not like the rest of these heathens. I pray every prayer time. Look at me. I'm out here. Everybody can see me. Jesus said, no, when you pray, go in your closet. Go in secret. Pray to your father in secret who sees you openly. You'll have great reward. Do you know every good deed we can do in a practice of a faith can be nullified by our motive? And so what Jesus is getting at is our motive. What's down underneath? What's, what's the engine driving this thing? Is it... You're attached to me by faith in my death and resurrection for you and you love me with all your heart and you've surrendered everything to me and you're taking up your cross daily and following me like my disciples do? Or are you just practicing some religion? Apparently a whole lot of America was just practicing some religion and when the heat gets turned up a little bit or somebody challenges our views a little bit, poof, I'm out. I just became a nun. Third thing in this sermon, religious leaders often attempt to gain power, prestige, and wealth. Nobody in this church that I know of is in their role because of that. But in the early days here in the Sermon on the Mount, like I told you, a lot of these Jewish leaders were strongly tied to Rome. And there was a benefit for them of that. Some of the tax collectors even, like stories in the Bible of Zacchaeus, the wee little man, my brother-in-law. No. Zacchaeus, the, the wee little man, was a Jewish guy, but he was a tax collector for Rome. There was benefit in that for him. Wasn't so much prestige, but it was some power over the people and some personal wealth building. But Matthew... 633 says this about Jesus' followers. 
Jesus' followers will seek first his kingdom and true righteousness and trust him to provide for their physical needs. They don't use their faith or their position to better themselves other than internally and personally, but not not for some prestigious thing or not for some power, not to be the, the next conference speaker rock star guy. They use their position to serve Christ, seek his kingdom first, true righteousness. And they trust him that he'll take care of our needs like he promises in that passage. And intended to preach the whole sermon on Matthew 7, 1 through 6. So we're only going to camp there for a couple minutes. But all those other things, when you practice a religion, so I can say, I can check this, I'm better than you there. I check this, I'm better than you there. Leads to Matthew 7. Judge not, lest you be judged. This is probably one of the most popular verses known by our culture to holler at us. Do not judge others and you will not be judged. There's something interesting in the first two verses and that is all the pronouns are plural. Jesus isn't isn't talking to an individual. He's talking to the 12 disciples who just in a little short while will be the new religious leaders. Remember the Pharisees, what they're like? They're constantly criticizing other people, judging people, putting them down. And Jesus said, you lay all these weights on men's shoulders and you don't lift one little finger to do them yourself, you hypocrites. So he's saying to these 12 guys, all personal pronouns, you, you guys, don't be like them. When you come into leadership, your job is not to be judging everybody. You don't become judge, jury, and executioner. So what do you want us to do, Jesus? Now he shifts in verse 3 to a singular pronoun. Now he's saying, each one of you and every one of you, I got some questions for you. Why do you worry about the speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? Why do you worry about that little flaw in your wife? for your girlfriend or boyfriend or that guy you work with? Why do you worry about that one thing that annoys you, but you don't seem to even notice you got a four by four beam sticking out of your own eye? Now, what is he talking about? He's talking about us becoming religious rather than Christ followers. Religious people love to judge other people based on how well you live up to my expectations without ever looking in the mirror of my own soul to see the darkness that's inside of me. So Jesus said, you've got to get to work on the inside of you first if you're going to be my follower. You have to clean house. You have to quit lying. Quit lusting, quit judging, quit acting like you're holier than thou, but you've never looked in the mirror. Stop assuming you got it all together and everybody else is wrong. 
Why don't you take a year and do some hard work on you? If you want some help, I wrote a book called Journey to the Core. Facing your worst and finding your best. You can buy it on Amazon. Just search Journey to the Core and my name. There's a shameless plug. But it's my journey all the way inside doing this hard work of log removal. Here's the benefit of doing that. You get to do real ministry. And that's what Christ wanted from his disciples. Once you get the log out of your own eye, he says, you will be able to see clearly to help another person get the speck out of their eye, out of your friend's eye, it says. The Greek word is you'll be able to see through. God gives you the gift of discernment. When you look at the darkness in your own soul before a holy God and you do the hard work, the Bible calls it sanctification, becoming more like Jesus and less like you, identifying the hurtful patterns in your life and changing them. He gives you this almost magic ability to see through somebody else's struggle and identify with them. Instead of judging them, you want to step up beside them and put your arm on their shoulder and say, friend, man, I've been there. Let me walk alongside of you as we go through this together. Let me ask you, are you practicing a religion or are you following Jesus Christ? Do you know my biggest hurdle to being a real solid Christ follower is my own stubbornness. It is so challenging to take up my cross every day not get sucked in by everything going on out there and keeping focused on him, letting him work on me, using me to help other people. And I'm going to tell a story really fast as I wrap this up, and I'm not going to miss the punchline this time. About six weeks ago, my wife Gail and I were out for a walk on a Sunday night. We were walking down 60, State Road 60, kind of catty corner from Home Depot. There's a bus station there, a little roofed area. And as we walked by there, we, we saw a guy in a wheelchair and we said hi and kept on going. It's right in the thick of when COVID was, man, if you look at somebody sideways, you're going to catch it during that time. Before we knew it was really not anywhere near as bad as they've told us. Getting dangerous here. Okay. So we walked by this guy and we both waved to him and he hollers at us, hey, can you help me? So what do you need? And we looked at him, and both his arms were cut off right here. And both his legs were cut off right below the knee. So here's a guy in a wheelchair with no arms and no legs. And this is not a joke. And he said, my battery died in this electric wheelchair. Would you guys push me across 60, put me under roof over there at a shopping center, and I'll be good there for the night. I'm like, we're not supposed to touch anybody. This is COVID time. You know, I'm, who knows where this guy's been? But we just said, Lord, protect us from COVID. And Gail and I grabbed the wheelchair and pushed this guy across the street, got him under roof, and then said, you okay? He said, yeah, I'll be good here. And we said, all right, see ya. I was in a walking competition at work, so we had to get on the road. So we're down the road a little ways, and... I said to Gail, 
I don't think Jesus would have just pushed that guy over there under the roof and not done anything more for him. I said, we need to get home. I need to go back down there and talk to him and find out what I can do. And I'm praying, Lord, what would you do? What would Jesus do? It's a good question. And I thought, well, he'd go down there and grow him some arms and legs and heal the guy and it would be all over. So I'm not probably going to be able to do that. So what do you want me to do? So I talked to Gail about it and we said, do whatever you have to do. I said, bring him home. Do whatever you have to do. So we went down. I said to the guy, uh, I'm back. What, what can I do to help you? What do you need? He said, I'm really hungry. Well, there's a nearby little Latin restaurant that was illegally serving food out the back door, kind of. So I went around there and bought him dinner. It was chicken and rice. Brought it around. I was all happy. I bought him his dinner. I showed it to him. He smelled it and he's looking at it. And he goes, wow, that looks good. Then I look at him. And it hit me. I said, do you want me to feed you? He said, I don't have a lot of other options. So I'm sitting there in almost the dark, cutting up this guy's food, feeding him a bite, holding his bottle while he takes a drink, being totally humbled inside of all the blessing in life that I know. And I'm looking at him like, you're a man created in the image of God. And you are loved eternally. And God's actually got a purpose for your life. If you'll surrender to him. So I fed him dinner, said, is there anything else I can do? He said, somebody stole my pillow and blanket. So I called my wife who's home and she drives down with a pillow and a blanket. I put the pillow behind his head in a wheelchair, tuck him in like a dad tucking in a baby. And... I said, take care of yourself and I'll see you. I, you know something, when the Lord puts you in a ministry opportunity like that, it's hard to just walk away from it. So I went home. All I could think of was Eddie. Is he all right? Is he cold? What's he doing out there? First thing in the morning, I jumped in my truck. I'm back down there. I said, we, we need to do something for you. What can I do? He said, you could give me a charger for my battery for my wheelchair. I said, where? He told me. I went down, bought him a battery charger, plugged it in. It wouldn't charge the battery. He said, well, that battery's been dead a long time. The battery's probably shot. So I ran back to the same place, bought him batteries, had to go home in my shop to unrig the batteries he had and rig them back up in a kit. There's two batteries in them things. I go back. When I, when I did that, though, to get the battery, guess what? can't get the battery with a guy in a chair. I'm like, Lord, what am I supposed to do? I'm going to be hugging this guy during COVID. And I said, oh, well, what the heck? If I'm going to get it, I probably already got it. I had to get this guy, and he was still pretty heavy for no arms and no legs. Move him over to a chair, sit him down, tear his wheelchair apart, get the battery out, put it back together, put him back in it, Go to the store, go fix the battery, come back, lift him out again, put the batteries in, plug them in. It worked. I told you that whole story to tell you that I couldn't just leave him like that. So I called 
over to the Women's Resource Center and talk to Cheryl Hickman, hope for her. Said, what kind of resources do we have in the community? She gave me the name of a deputy sheriff in Hillsboro that all his job is is to look after the homeless population. I told him about the guy, told him where I last saw him, said, please come by. He said, I, I got plenty of st- services I can offer him. He definitely needs to be in somewhere. Because I started thinking like, how does he brush his teeth? Then I started thinking about, how does he go to the bathroom? How does he do much of anything for himself? So the sheriff found him, came out. The sheriff called me back, and he goes, I offered him services. I can't make him go. And he did not want him. And I thought... You got no arms, you got no legs, you're broken, you're in a wheelchair, and you still won't surrender? How stubborn can a human be? And because of all the hard work that I've done on myself, it was almost like Eddie disappeared. And this big four by six mirror popped up and said, yeah, how stubborn can a human be? You can practice your religion and check all your boxes and it's totally worthless. Or you can do the hardest and best thing ever And that is, surrender your life to the one who died in your place and rose from the grave and say, you know what, Lord? My gender, my race, my sexuality is the least significant thing about me. Knowing I am your child, I am created in your image and I am loved by you, accepted by you gifted by you, going to be changed by you as my identity, and it is everything. Choice is everybody's. You're going to be Eddie and say, eh, no thanks. Are you going to say, you know what? If that guy predicted to come out of a grave and did it, I think I'm going to follow him. Let's pray. Father, thanks for the teaching today, for your word, for your love, for your pursuit. And I rejoice in how different following you is to practicing a religion. And you said to a religious people that were worn out by the religion, all you who are Weary and heavy laden, come to me and I'll give you rest for your souls. Following you is a great adventure, Lord. Dynamic, life-giving, life-changing. I pray that some would make that choice today. Thanks for the opportunity. Bless you, Lord. In Christ's name, amen.